The book of Revelation is one of the strangest books in the Bible. People tend to leave it alone because it's seemingly more difficult than others. So it's one of the most neglected books of the Bible by those in the church. It's full of prophecy, revealing things to come. And do you know what God said about this book that he says about no other book in the Bible? First, he said, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. At the end of the book, God pronounces a curse. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. So this book was written by the Apostle John, but he wasn't the author of the book. This is God's book delivered to John by an angel. It's not human opinion about what's going to happen in the future. It's what God says is going to happen. Revelation is also a symbolic book, which does raise the question, how do we interpret the signs? Some signs are obvious, like the lake of fire, the books that are open, the great white throne judgment, and the meaning of those signs no one really argues about. But some of the signs are actually explained to us. The seven stars, the seven lampstands, incense, which refers to prayer, the dragon, which stands for the devil, and some signs are paralleled in other places in the Bible and scripture, the tree of life, manna, the morning star, the four horsemen, the four beasts. All you really need to do is to go look at those symbols and find the corresponding scripture in other books of the Bible to see what they mean. This book is all about the strength and power of God. Power doesn't belong to our president or to the prime ministers. Power belongs to God. This book is, of all the books in the Bible, it's given to us to develop our hope, which is the faculty we have for grasping the future and saying that the future belongs to Jesus and not to anyone else. This book is an incentive to godliness, seeing that all these things are to be dissolved. What sort of persons ought we to be? living our lives in all godliness and holiness. The letters to the seven churches alone search out our heart until we see ourselves as we really are. Revelation gives us a full understanding of Jesus. Now I know he came peacefully into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding a colt when he was on earth the first time. But when he comes the second time, he'll come on a white charger of war, a horse. Jesus returns as a lion, not as a lamb. And without a reading of Revelation, we could end up with a meek and sentimental view of Jesus that really doesn't correspond to the Jesus that we're going to meet. The blessing of reading this book is that it brings the story of God's redemption to a happy conclusion. It's the completion of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the world. 
All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for the preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see, and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The main part of this chapter starts in verse 9 with the vision John had. It began with something that he heard, a voice. John was in prison on a Greek island called Patmos in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and John had been traveling around a group of seven churches in an area that we would now call Turkey, but then it was called Asia Minor. So his body was in prison, his mind was in the scriptures, but his spirit was not chained. While his body may have been chained, God had granted him the rare privilege to move in the spirit. So to move out of the present into things yet to come. And so he heard this voice in the spirit, which means that the other prisoners, they wouldn't have been able to hear it. To be in the spirit means to be secretly in tune with something that others aren't. You're just alone with God. So John, he turned to see the voice at first, and he only saw some lampstands, candlestick kind of things, seven of them. Then he saw some stars, and then he saw a person standing Now think of the usual pictures that we see rendered of Jesus. He doesn't look like that at all now. And he may have looked like that at some point, once, I guess, but I don't know. But what we should see him like now in our minds is as the Bible describes him here. 
He looks human and yet also divine. His clothes are down to his feet. His hair is white as snow. Do you know why it's white? Because he's the ancient of days. He is centuries old. He's been from all time and his hair is pure white. His eyes are blazing, burnished feet that look like they're metal. Why? Because they're feet that can trample. His voice is booming. It drowns out all others. A two-edged sword comes from his mouth. The word strips away excuses. And his face, it shines like the sun. The apostle John, who was loved by Jesus, fell down as if he were dead like he fainted. Well, if the beloved apostle had that kind of reaction, what do you think that the world will do when they see a Jesus like this? We need to grasp this mature and majestic view of him. This is a view of Jesus as divine as well as human, in glory, in majesty, in purity, as well as compassion. For a lot of people, this will be a totally new kind of Jesus that they're reading about here in Revelation. But if we're going to get the whole picture, we need to read this. So there's John, fallen on the ground, but then he realizes that this is the same Jesus. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am the living one, I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. A lampstand can't give any light itself. It's only there to hold the light. A church can't give any light on its own. It's only there to hold up Christ so that he can shine. And a lampstand that loses its light is removed from its place. It's of no use. So Jesus is going to give John this message for those lampstands. Now keep in mind that as followers of Christ, we are the church. The church doesn't consist of walls of wood, mortar, and stone. And as believers who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our bodies are now the temple of God. In unity, we make up the body of Christ when we come together in fellowship, faith, and worship. So as we read these messages to the churches, we need to think of them in terms of the seven different categories that characterize people of faith. So as an individual member of the body of Christ, which group would you fall into? I want you to notice that all the people being addressed are professing faith as believers and followers of Christ. The most important opinion is what Jesus thinks about us, and his opinion might be the opposite of our own. As we read these seven letters, we should ask him, Lord, is this me? The message to the church in Ephesus. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. 
To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Notice the letter is not addressed to the church, but to the angel. We should never forget that when we meet for worship, that the angels are meeting with us. They're watching our worship and watching over the churches. Even though the human beings are going to read the letter, it's clearly the angel who will watch whether they correct what is wrong. The letter's addressed to the angel, but it's from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Not only does he hold the churches in his hands, which tells us of his protection, but he walks among them. This is intended to convey the idea that Jesus is the foreman. He's the head of the church. It helps us to worship properly and seriously when we realize that he's the one watching. So he says in the letter, I know. He knows every single thing done or said in a church. And that's an, either an encouraging or frightening thought, depending on what you're doing. This church was doing many things right. They worked hard. They didn't grow weary. There was perseverance. They had the Apostle Paul, though, even as their first pastor for a start. They also had Priscilla and Aquila, a godly couple with great gifts. And they had Apollos, the man who was skilled in expounding the Old Testament. And they even had the Apostle John. But as they went along, they were doing good works, but they had wandered away from their love relationship with the Lord Jesus. And he had this to say, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. This church had a heart problem. Everything looked good on the outside, but their hearts weren't in the right place. He warned them, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Jesus made a profound statement to this loveless church. He said, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And it may seem strange that Jesus commended a church for hating, but a healthy church hates certain things. The only historic mention that's found regarding the deeds and doctrines of the Nicolaitans is found in the two cities of Ephesus and Pergamum, both of which were pagan and practiced the occult. Both are located in modern-day Turkey. Pergamum was identified as one of the most wicked cities in the history of the ancient world, and its citizens practiced many forms of the occult. In Ephesus, the leading pagan religion involved the worship of the goddess Artemis. In both cities, believers were intensely and regularly persecuted by those who practiced and followed the pagan religions. Christian citizens were actually forced to contend with paganism on a level that just went way beyond other cities. Pagan activities were the center of the life in those cities, and it was challenging for the believers to separate themselves from the culture. These Christians promoted a position of tolerance which ultimately led the people to indulge in worldly sins, and it lowered God's standards in the eyes of men. We can't compromise with the world and tolerate continued lifestyles of sin in the church. We have to preach the truth as it's written from the Bible. It's not our word, it's God's. It's not for us to pick and choose the parts we like and the parts we don't like. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans seemed to convey that it really wasn't necessary to separate from the world in order to faithfully follow Christ. So essentially, they believed that it was acceptable to compromise morality in order to live in harmony with both the church and the world. This was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that Jesus hated. This version of faith led to a weak and worldly version of Christianity that was without conviction and lacked power. In many churches today, believers are being taught that 
Because of the grace of, of Christ, God's law has become meaningless. In other words, regardless of what scripture teaches, once we've received grace by faith, we're no longer expected or required to be doers of the word. Basically, the pursuit of righteousness and following God's commands is optional. That was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus looked at this church and he drew attention to a flaw. Their love had gone. And if you really love the Lord, you'll love one another, is what he was saying. It was well run, their church. People were busy doing things. It was active and efficient. There was just an absence of love. And he tells them three steps to make it right. First, he tells them that they need to remember. How many husbands and wives have said, do you remember what we were like 20 years ago? And Jesus says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They needed to recall how it was when they first loved him. Second, he said, repent. And third, do the things you did at first. If you used to love to do those things, then go back and start again. Rekindle the love. That's what he was telling them. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who was the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. Under the blasphemy of those opposing you, they say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. But if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. He's telling them that he's seen all of the hardships, trials, and their human poverty that they've endured. But in spite of that, this church is spiritually rich. He's saying they have stored up their treasures in heaven. Most Christians in America think very little about being persecuted for their faith. But that time could be coming. There are many places in the world where Christians are persecuted on a daily basis. And the Bible says that this church suffered because of tribulation, poverty, and persecution. But the Lord says to them, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus was saying that we must be faithful to the end. We may lose our physical body, but that'll be insignificant in comparison to preserving our soul in eternity. One of the martyrs of this particular church of Smyrna was a man called Polycarp, who was burned at the stake at an extreme old age. The Jews hated him so much that they broke their Sabbath to gather wood for the bonfire. He was tied to the stake because he refused to deny Christ, even though he was gray-haired and just an old man that couldn't take much persecution and suffering. The proconsul of Smyrna said to him, Deny Christ and you can go free. I beg you as an old man, consider your gray hairs. And Polycarp replied like this, Eighty and six years I have served Christ, and he never did do me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Later he said to the proconsul, Thou threatenest me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment for the ungodly. This is the stuff the church was made from. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and where the church faces persecution, it always grows. Jesus told them that some people 
who say they are Jews were not actually, and they belong to the devil. It was a comfort to those Christians hearing that, that Jesus saw the devil in the synagogue that was reporting them to the Romans. Jesus was always telling people not to be afraid because he knew that fear cripples. Fear leads people to do silly things. Fear leads people to deny Christ. But he's telling us not to be afraid. The future is in his hands, not Satan's, and Jesus will have the last word. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Imagine a gigantic staircase twice as wide as a typical church building, and it rises right in the middle, and at the top is this tremendous temple with Corinthian pillars that are all around it. And it's surrounded by sculptured figures of gods and goddesses. That's what stood above Pergamum, on the top of a hill, and it was the center of pagan worship for this town. And you can still go and see it today. The Pergamon altar itself is now housed in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. In the second half of the 19th century, stones from that ancient citadel on the Acropolis of Pergamum were being burned in order to procure lime. So excavations sponsored by the Berlin Museum were carried out between 1878 and 1886. And this altar and many of its sculptures were removed with permission of the authorities in Turkey. And they were taken to the Museum of Berlin. So you can actually go there and see this today, which is incredible. But this wasn't the only pagan thing that was going on in Pergamum. You know that universal medical symbol? It's a pole with a serpent entwined around it. The serpent is Asclepius. I think I'm saying that right. The old pagan god of healing. And the serpent was worshipped in Pergamum. And people came there to be healed. And healings actually took place. Because when allowed by God, as in the story of Job, Satan can have power over our bodies to bring disease or to bring health by removing infirmity that he inflicted in the first place, producing a counterfeit healing. So the trouble is that if he brings you health, he wrecks your spiritual life because our only true source of healing is through Jesus Christ. So we should never seek healing through any other name. The coming of the lawless one is in according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So it's in this city that this little church had a tough time. And looking through the letter that Jesus sent them, he commends two things. First, he says, you remain true to my name. They wouldn't let go of the name by which they had found health and healing and wholeness. They didn't deny the faith. So they held on to his name, but he said, I have a few things against you. They were letting pagan beliefs and pagan behavior influence them more than they had even realized. 
And that is how Satan gets a hold of a church. It might not be through some direct frontal attack, but by worming his way in through your behavior and through your doctrine. And this is what happened here in Pergamum. They had faced dying for the faith and they still talked about Jesus, but they were beginning to eat the, the meat from idols and they were fornicating. In other words, their standards of behavior were going down. They were going down because of the Nicolotians teachings, which again can be summed up like this. Oh, you know, we shouldn't be so narrow-minded. We mustn't lose our relationships with the world or our reputation because we want to win them, right? We can have a me some mental reservations, but we can go as far as we need to um, in worldly ways in order to win them for Christ. That was their teaching. And the result was that Christians, while they still talked about Jesus, were becoming mixed up with idol worship and with lowering their moral standards. And Jesus told them that these things are putting a stumbling block in front of his people. In short, we really need to pay attention and be watchful for deluded doctrine that's delivered by even charismatic leaders, people that we would trust. Paul said it this way, no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So Christ is the head of the church and we need to learn through the Holy Spirit and be in the word. Jesus had a very strong message. He commanded repentance. He said, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Why is he so fierce with them? There are people in the church who were sinning here and holding on to false teachings. And he said, you tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. In a similar way, you have some Nicolotians among you who follow the same teaching. And a church like that is not only not a help to Jesus, it's an absolute hindrance. It's far from being some advertisement for Christianity. It becomes the exact opposite. There are standards that we can't stoop to as Christians if we're going to survive as a lampstand in a dark place. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. 
They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. As it relates to moral boundaries and spiritual disciplines, many churches and professing Christians are compromising the Word of God in an effort to be culturally relevant and all-inclusive. And certainly being morally inclusive is the quickest way to fill the pews, right? But we can't overlook immorality among fellow believers and deem that it's acceptable or even tolerable to the Lord, especially in His holy sanctuary. He's clearly told us that sin is detestable to Him. We can't create an atmosphere of tolerance for the behaviors that are offensive to the Lord. We must stand on and continually point to God's Word to define the uncompromising standards of our faith. Each and every person, regardless of their story, is deeply and unconditionally loved by God. But we all battle with a terminal illness called sin. There was this woman in this particular church urging men to get into various sins and joining in herself. And Jesus mentions this Jezebel's claim to be a prophetess. He said that he'd given her time to repent, but she hadn't. So he would have to, she would have to face his feet, burnished bronze feet, which trample the enemies of God. He had given her opportunities, but she wouldn't take them. But then he turns to those members of this church who do not hold to her teaching. The church needed to hold fast to what they knew to be true, cut themselves off totally from that woman. And then he tells them of things that they'll be given. And one of them is the morning star. I will also give them the morning star. Do you know what the morning star is? It's something that shines even when the sun is shining. We're told in heaven that there'll be no sun because the glory of God and the Lamb will replace the sun and be brighter than the sun. But the morning star means that some people will shine even in the presence of the glory of God. Jesus is showing that if you keep yourself clear of all of this compromise, and, and if you stand and hold fast for what you have that's true, then one day you'll shine even in the presence of God. The message to the church in Sardis. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. This is huge. These people are physically alive, but he's referring to them as spiritually dead. There are three things about this town. It was self-sufficient, it was self-confident, and it was self-indulgent. 
and we know this from history. The first modern money was minted here in Sardis. The church was affluent and idle, not watchful, according to scripture. The church was full spiritually, but it was a graveyard. They worshiped, but not in spirit and in truth. They honored God with their lips, but not with their lives. They professed to be Christian, but they didn't possess Christ. And for this reason, they were in the most dangerous spiritual condition. But even though the church was filled with nominal Christians, the letter is not all gloom and despondency. He says, yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says he will not erase their names from the book of life. And I just want to say, if a name is going to get erased, doesn't that mean that it was already written in the book? This is a church full of casual or misguided Christians. But for those who are victorious, the garments that he refers to are the inner garments which you wear on your heart, the garments of holiness in the Lord. And in many churches that have gone off track, there's still some little remnant of a prayer meeting. There's some handful of people that are still praying and reading scripture. So this letter had a call to do three things. First, to remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. There is a need to look to the past, to think of how the church began with simple, godly people who heard, who received, and who were saved by grace, with humility, before it became a country club type of congregation. There's a need to look at the present and to repent of what they'd become, fashionable and spiritually dead, to obey God's word and repent. And they were to look to the future. He said, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know what time that I'll come to you. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obey my word and did not deny me. Look. I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with the ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The thing that I notice first about this letter is that Christ has no complaint. There's nothing wrong with this church. The Lord is saying that he has set an open door for ministry in the hearts of the people that possess this kind of faithfulness. And Paul writes from prison and says that the word of God is not bound. There's an open door before me. If God wants his word in a country, he opens a door that no government can shut it. And if God sees fit to shut a door, no amount of church pushing will open it. So every church and every believer, we should ask the Lord, Lord, what door are you opening? 
And which doors are you closing? And instead of spending all of our time looking at the doors that are closing, we need to look for where God wants us to be and ask him. The church in Philadelphia was a busy little church. Verse eight might suggest that they were small in number, and they, but they had influence. And that clearly doesn't matter that they were small. A little church with big faith in God can do much more than a big church with little faith in God. So being faithful to God's word will lead to open doors for ministry. When his word is the foundation, then everything else is gonna line up in its place. Verse nine tells us that they were having some trouble from the Jews in town. There was also this Jewish synagogue, um, which was saying that they were, they were the true assembly of God and not the fellowship of Christians. And Jesus makes it really clear that they're wrong. He says, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. There is trouble coming, but the church there has endured patiently. So Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. When trouble comes, our situation is going to depend on whether before it came, we were holding on to Jesus or not. If we held on to him before, then when trouble comes, he's going to hang on to us. And it's so sad to see people that are in serious trouble. They're like a ship in a storm trying to get an anchor down. And if only they'd put that anchor down before the storm hit, then they would have been secure. And in verse 11, he says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. He wants them to wear it, not lose it. How would they lose it? I mean, I don't know, but maybe by forfeiture or by denying him. Having spoken of the coming hour of trial, Jesus is telling these Philadelphia believers to hold on. When the religion of Islam came bursting out of Arabia, it swept through the Middle East, establishing itself by sword. It swept most of the churches away out of North Africa, and it spread around to what we now call Turkey. And in town after town, the whole place went Muslim. But there was one place that held on, Philadelphia. 2,000 years after this letter was written, Philadelphia is a town which still has a strong Christian presence in the middle of Muslim Turkey. Praise the Lord. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness an ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Everyone with ears must hear and listen to the Spirit and understand 
what he is saying to the church. These people literally make the Lord sick. Jesus couldn't see a thing in this church that he could even commend them about. The letter begins by reminding them that he is infallible. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. When the Lord describes himself as the faithful and true witness, it means that he will tell you the truth about yourself. He's not going to flatter you and he's not going to denigrate you. He's going to tell you exactly what he sees, and that will be the Amen truth. This church was living on a false reputation. And we don't see here any trace of paganism or idolatry. I don't see any trace of heresy spoken of or immorality in the letter. So none of the things we saw in the other churches are here. So what is it that he sees that's so terrible? Indifference. And that's worse than anything else. Nothing kills a church spiritually more quickly than indifference. These are worldly people that are both arrogant and prideful. The nakedness that's being referred to here is actually a metaphor for spiritual nakedness. This verse is also using eye ointment as a metaphor for genuine repentance, which is the only thing that can restore our spiritual eyesight. God loves us even when we can't see, and he counsels us to be zealous and repent when it's needed. Even when we, when we push him away, he stands at the door and knocks, hoping and waiting to be invited back in. These are the words of the Lord. I wish you were either one or the other, hot or cold. He's not interested in our casual and comfortable Christianity. Lukewarm is not okay. He wants one or the other. We either love him or we don't. We serve him or we serve ourselves. Indifference is still a choice. It just moves us in the wrong direction. When a church is on fire, people will be hot and cold towards the church. They will either be violently against it or they'll be passionately for it, but they won't remain lukewarm inside. A church that's hot will make a world either hot or cold. And another thing that we see here is their ignorance. They honestly didn't know what they were really like. So he instructs them, instead of independence or self-sufficiency, they're to come to him and he'll give them three things. First, true gold. You don't need to have a lot of money to be rich. True gold is something that comes to you through fire through refining experiences of suffering and, and hardships. And truly wealthy people are those who've been refined by God. Secondly, if they'll repent and come to God, he'll give them white clothes to wear and ointment for their eyes so they can see. He isn't referring to physical eyes. That's not their blindness. He's referring to the blindness of the soul that's blinded by the God of this world. And so they can't see themselves. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If you really love someone, you reprove and you chasten. It's part of love. So Jesus deals with them because he loves them and calls on them to be earnest and repent. Repent and then get on fire. That's what he wants from us, church. He wants us to wake up and notice that he loves us, that he is Alpha and Omega, that he has a plan from beginning to end and we're part of it. And this life is fleeting and we need to recognize and pay attention to God's word and to his warnings because we'll be without excuse. So wake up, church, wake up.